Welcome to the Mindfulness Academy podcast. I'm your host, Amy Morgan, and today I am so happy to introduce you to our guest. Welcome, Pervy Lippincott. She currently sits on the board and serves as Chief Operating Officer for Indie Yoga Movement, a nonprofit which provides yoga and mindfulness practices to schools in central Indiana. She has been teaching for 10 years and is credentialed as an experienced 500-hour accredited yoga teacher and continued education provider, having completed over 1,000 hours of training and nearly 5,000 hours of teaching experience. Wow. She has studied around the world and teaches a variety of styles of yoga, including restorative, vinyasa, and katona. Did I say that right? All right. Got it. (laughs) She uses breath practices in her daily practice and with her own children and finds this part of yoga most accessible and helpful in the current season of her life. She leads group classes, mentorships, seasonal offerings, as well as advanced practitioner trainings in person and virtually. Welcome, Pervy. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me in the Mindfulness Academy. I'm so delighted. This is going to be a great conversation. Um, I believe we were connected by way of one of our former podcast guests, Jessica Gershman, who is wonderful and does so much in the yoga community as well. Um, So I'm so excited that she connected us. And I would love for you to tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your work in educational background. Tell us the highlights of Hervey. Oh, okay. Well, you know, um, I was born in the States. I spent a little time between here and India. So I got to do some schooling there and I got to do some schooling here, but I uh, spent most of my childhood adult growing up and graduated from high school in Michigan. I ended up at Ball State um, on an academic scholarship and I studied pre-law and then I ended up in Indy thinking I might go to law school worked um, for some defense attorneys and state attorney's offices. And then I ended up at the state house as a, as a legislative assistant. Here in Indiana, um, right? Here in Indiana. Yeah. yeah, the state. And so I was here doing that in Indianapolis after graduating from, from Ball State. And then um, I got as far as taking the LSATs and then just decided it was not for me. And after policy, I ended up uh, down the path of yoga. And so um, I've been in this place for 10 years, which is kind of wild um, when I think back on, I've done a lot of different things over time. And it's the one thing I've done for the most extended amount of time, you know. Absolutely. Tell us about that jump. I know you and I have talked about it a little bit, but this jump from I might do law and I'm working in policy to yoga. Tell me about that hop. Yeah, well, you know, I, I service is a really big part of growing up where I came from and advocacy. My mom, my grandmother, you know, posted with Mahatma Gandhi. It is just in our values. My mom went to strike at her own med school, like when she was in pre-med school in India and, um, it is just, and to give back. And so to, to, so I had always, she, I think it was her dream to be an attorney, her mom's dream for her to be a doctor. So in some way I was kind of like trying to, to like bring this 
idea of like mother daughters have the same vision. We want to go out and do helpfulness in the world. And there's an audience that could really use it. So I had thought I'd work in some way, um, more service as an attorney or as, as a, in legal services. And then when I saw the work, um, it just looked sad and hard and like, I just, it didn't, it didn't, the idea and then the work didn't meet, you know, um, in that quality. And I noticed, and I was like, they're really struggling. So where can we go? And an opportunity came up to uh, pursue a job at the state house here in Indiana, in Indianapolis. And, um, and I landed there for a while. Um, but you know, who get policymakers into their places and the policies they make and vote in, um, and we're really seeing that, I think, right now in society, what's being made, what what's being passed and what people want are a bit of a dissonance. Um, and yeah, so I was like, well, I guess I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to the people. I'm just going to go work with the people. And like if there are people that out are out there and they can see themselves as potent and possible and that there is endless potential for them and that they are not alone in that and that the world is an abundant place. Um, and they have the resources within themselves to find that, then that's what I'm going to try to do, I suppose. And, and it, and it fit, but you know, that puzzle piece was like, like trying to figure out what angle to put it almost like a, like a 3d, you know, and it's like, you have to find the right spot and then it, everything kind of click, click, click came together. And yep. here we are. That is beautiful. And I have to pause and say, okay, go back to the Gandhi piece. What? Oh, I okay, know didn't that didn't that. come up. That was kind of the, the lead was buried. Okay, tell me about this. You have this beautiful family with a heart of service. Okay, tell me about this. What happened? Well, you know, we were we were uh, uh, India was colonized by Britain for a long time, and so during partition building all that up, there was. I mean, he was known for his silent protests and his, he was an attorney actually, right? And he was in Africa and that's doing work and seeing how things were going because you had other colonized nations there and extensions of the British empire that went over. And so that's where my mom lived. That's where my mom was born in um, Uganda. She grew up in Kenya. And then when her dad passed away, he worked for an, a company that was, I affiliated with the colonies there or the cities there or whatever it is. And, but they, he passed, he was, he, he was in a horrific car accident and passed away. And so they moved back to India. Okay. But during that time, Gandhi, when he was in Africa, was working on these things and brought these ideas of us, you know, really becoming our own nation again, India, like claiming itself and how do we do it? And um, so in some of the silent protests, my grandmother was at one and she was arrested in jail. <laughs> I mean, in that that group of them in that time in that era. So my mom's mother. Yeah, it's pretty special, you know, piece of history for us. Um, and we did. We right. We we were able to break away from the monarchy and the nation. I mean, that's not perfect there. There's still so much to be done, but as is everywhere. Um, so that's that would that's in my blood it's in my blood. it's, it's in, in your in blood. blood oh my goodness thank you for sharing that I have goosebumps how cool ah. you and your family to have that part in your history in in the history of India so 
Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. Nice. Yeah, I know it slipped right in. I just like it <laughs> snuck it in there. Um, tell me about your journey to yoga and mindfulness. I I sometimes use those kind of interchangeably, and I'll probably do that today because to me, yoga is mindfulness, and mindfulness is yoga because you're being aware of your body and your breath and your place in relationship to everything else. Yeah. I mean, I think um, contentment, right? To receive where we are and be and attune to it is a piece of that. And I, after having for so long spent my time trying to figure it out from the outside in, uh, trying to make it look a certain way on the outside, do the work on the outside, I was really finding yoga was giving me that opportunity to go inside and really own it for myself. And it was a hard decision when I left, you know, and I was trying to figure out how to do this next thing. And it was like, I had this instinct in me was like, go out and become a yoga teacher. I like proclaimed it. It was like Saki involved. And it was like, you know, we're just like the last day. And it was like, this is what I want. And like a joyous like proclamation. And so I really started practicing consistently. I was on my mat regularly. I was learning about more of the stories I grew up with, um, whether it was the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana. And so um, I knew these ideas and stories and, and this appeal and this uh, potential to just be with what we are. And, and um, I think that mindfulness is really that, our intentional attention to something. Daniel Goleman is a brilliant um journalists and scientists out there, scientific journalists is like, you know, sometimes I think is what he references himself, but I, I heard that version of a description. It's like, what is mindfulness? It's our intentional attention to something. And if we do that, the, these ideas, these ancient ideas are saying that, you know, when we put ourselves in something, we put divinity into it. We make it sacred because we bring ourselves to it and we are special. We are valuable. We hold potency. And so um, to see that every moment kind of carries a bit of that with us. Um, nice thing about windows, natural light, also lots of pedestrians. Give me one second. I'm going to take sure. care of these guys. So, you know, as I was saying, the intentional attention quality of it, um, I just, I found that and I could I was moving my body not to make it look a certain way or do a certain thing. It was purely for me and I could start working both my mind and my body. And I was really seeing um, that. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to do it. I just, I, there was something into innately pulling me like a string, you know, you feel like, yeah. And so um, that was, that was how I made that kind of jump. And I actually, it was two of my good guy friends that had recommended um, yoga. And I was like, well, if these two can say that they've got really great things to say about it, then, okay, I'm going to give it a go. Like, and so, yeah, just practice to my first training, then my second training and third and fourth trainings and many trainings later, here we are. And have you always practice yoga? I mean, is that part of your blood too? Does your family practice yoga? Yeah. Well, you know, my mom does a lot of breath work, pranayama practice. Um, they do a lot of the meditative work, the like ceremonial or ritual work of it. She used to read the Mahabharata every year within that, which is this um, 7,000 verse text. 
it has the Bhagavad Gita, which is the story of Arjuna and um, Krishna. And it's this like, what are our dharmas? What are the things we have to go to in life? And what are these yogic tools that can help us take on the obstacles life is going to bring us anyway? And us seeing our own essential role in it and then playing our part and that being a part of a bigger part of something. And so that was there. We, I, I, my mother goes to like India, she would travel and she'd go to a lot of holy sites visits, but also um, these theologists and theologians and visit with them and go through theory and practice of breath work and just kind of ways to optimize it and use it. How, if we are energetic beings, if they can measure energy from our bodies, what is it that we put out in the world all the time and really playing with that through breath work and then also, um, you know, the meditation practices. But oh postures God. was not a big thing for my family. That was, So okay. it is something I found more here in, in this Western climate. Not that they don't have that there at all, but it's just they have more of the other stuff as well. <clears throat> okay. So would you, would you say in India there's more um, attention to breath work over posture? I don't know if you can answer that. I'm just kind of curious what you're yeah, saying. I don't know if over, but I don't think it's as um, separated or, um, as hierarchically placed as it is maybe in accessibility in the, in the Western cultures, right? There's typically an avenue and it's meditation or, or poses. And then the other stuff kind of, I feel like those are the two really big avenues, but there, you know, many, many pieces to yoga. And I think in, in those traditions, they really still have a lot of those other areas highlighted and yeah maybe that would be it it feels like in the u.s you have yoga you have meditation which you know conjures up the thought of a a meditation cushion those feel like kind of two things and breath work is kind of this this river that flows between them is kind of how it feels to me that sometimes you know it will touch the edge of it but it doesn't always um, fully integrate as kind of those three all in one that's in my mind how I've experienced it so far in in the U.S. Um, I feel like some of my yoga teachers will they'll pay more attention to the breath and kind of guide us through it more than others. More or just some are more just um, kind of the postures like you've talked about. You know the shapes. You talk about the shapes quite a bit, but um, internalizing those with the breath and the awareness of where we are. It's just folding it all in, you know, into yeah, the recipe. Yeah. So well, the postures are archetypes, right? They tell stories. They ask us to hold. What is it to be a warrior? What is it to, um, you know, eagle pose? Garudasana. Garuda was a he was a mythological eagle that had a very important task at hand, and so he's the king of the birds of the eagles, and so it's. It's that, and then we're going to feel, we're going to, you know, we're going to wrap ourselves in tight. We're going to get into these knots and we're going to get really consumed with ourselves. And what's the feeling of coming out of it and the flush of it, but what is like the potential of like mastering the attention, even through the difficulty. And I find Eagle to be for a while, it was like, and it's a joke I like to tell to my, you know, students or trainees when I like, I hated that pose. I don't, I, and I mean, I don't even like to use where I hate, but I very much disliked that pose for a while. And so much so I had expressed it that sometimes teachers would mockingly, when they'd put it in class, be like, oh, we're going to use Pervy's favorite pose here next. And it was like, 
gosh, darn it, y'all, you know, but, um, but eventually it's agitation. And now it's like something I really work to, to like make peace with, find opportunity and find the challenge to come on the other side. And, and then that's what the postures do for us. They provide samples of life's obstacles and how do we transition between them and how do we really stand in them and how do we find presence while we're turned around like a pretzel or stretching things that don't feel like they want to stretch or, you know, so to speak. Um, how do we deal with those patients? <laughs> I, I found that a lot in yin yoga. I have over the years that that is my favorite because you do get really uncomfortable, you know, it stretches out for minutes and you think, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And then that feeling of returning to Shavasana and feeling, you know, the body kind of come back together and reintegrate. It's just so fascinating. It's a beautiful yeah. practice. I love that one. Do you do yin? Is that part of your restorative? I do. I, I teach yin. I, or I'll, I'll, I'll teach a yin class to, um, I, um, have trained in restorative yoga with Judith Lasseter. And then I've taken the Katona style of restorative, which is more about reforming the body, reinforming it, kind of getting it out of its habits. And so, um, we're supporting it that way, but yin, I love it was, it played a very important role for me. I think I did my first like 30 day challenge many years ago and to do yoga 30 days in a row, multiple times, some days, if you're catching up, right. Trying to stay with the challenge, show discipline, practice. Um, I could not do just like a power yoga every day. You know, my body was like crumbling and I would, so I would balance it with yin. And I took this 430 time slot with this beautiful teacher, Lindsay Mahlers. And, um, I, it, it, even after the challenge ended, it became my ritual. It was one thing I would not give up every, anytime anybody wanted to make plans for the weekend, that was before kids. So I had all the time to make plans and it was, um, not until after 5.30 on Fridays. Like I'm not available this, like I can meet you before I can see you after, but this one hour is like sacred. It's devotional. It's mine. And I don't compromise it. And it really, it, it was, it, I think that one did a lot more work for me than, a lot of those, you know, up and downs and back and forths. And if there's, there's a need for all of it and I love all of it. And I, but there is something like you say, special about holding there and stretching it out and, um, restorative. Yeah. The yeah. Sitting with the discomfort. Uh, it's and realizing you can survive. Yeah, that's the thing that it taught me. It was just, you can survive discomfort. Yeah. Notice it. What are the sensations? Um, yeah. And then you get to add layers and it's like, what are the meanings I'm adding to it? And how do I give myself a break from that? Or like, what is, you know, and then, then taking that off of your mat, doing that in traffic when there's construction in Indianapolis, it's like mm -hmm. the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> you know? oh, amen to the traffic. Amen to uh, the construction traffic. I know. Yes. I'm wanting you to tell us you you've described what mindfulness really is to you and i think that's a beautiful thing i'm wondering if you could tell us about your trip back to india where that fit into your journey you say that yoga is a journey um i think it was 2014 you went to yoga or, or went um to india tell me about that the purpose of the trip and what happened yes okay so i feel like it should be i, I had been um after i left um, 
the policy world, I ended up in Freeland. I would always had a job. And so I was kind of figuring things out. And by coincidence and connectors, my husband knew somebody that, that was there. I ended up working for Lululemon when they opened their store at the Keystone Mall. And so I was perfect because I was like, well, I can work here. I can find a teacher training. They'll, it'll go hand in hand. I can, you know, really do that. And so I was there and I got my 200 hour all people and I was moving up in the ranks and I was kind of like, you know, um, in a lot of places when you're, you're developing, you, you are hopefully are developing and you can move up the ladder and you're moving around within an organization. And I realized as I was approaching the next rung that um, the more I went into my time there, if more asks were made of me, right? If I was going to go into an even bigger management position, then the thing I came there for, which now I had my 200 hours, so I was working at the store, I was teaching classes when I could, wasn't really leaving me time to give more to the thing I came there for in the first place. And I was having that realization. And then my father passed away in September of 2013. And my mom and I kind of had some come to, you know, this moment around it and um she moved she went back to India for a while her they were in arranged marriage so her whole life in the U.S. was based around him being here that's what brought her here you know was having met my father married him, and then coming to the U.S. and so she went back to where most of her family was and back to that for a bit and she was over there and I was just realizing this more and more and um and we both agreed. She's kind of like, Kirby, I don't, I don't really think you're supposed to like be working for other people. My parents were entrepreneurs for most of my, I mean, for all of my life. And so um, I put in my notice and I found a five, a 300 hour training. So this would give me my 500 level certification, which was kind of one of the highest tiers of certification you can get in, in regards to yoga lines crediting. And so I, um, at that time, so I just, I gave my notice and I went to India and I went to see family I hadn't seen in 20 years that I was raised with. I got to meet nieces and nephews I'd never seen. And Indian communities are really close. And so my cousins are more like brothers and sisters. And so their kids are more like me. You know, we don't do the, we don't really, I, it's hard. And I get lost in the first cousin, second cousin. I think everyone does, but like, so I think we simplify everybody's, they're your blood, they're your blood and they're your family, your brothers and your sisters. You grew up with them like that. And so, um. I did that. I went to an ashram in Kerala, got to like travel by train with my family from Northern India, where we're from in Gujarat, all the way down past Goa into Kerala. And then I spent a month um, doing a 300 hour training. So 10 ish hours a day more uh, for 30 days. Cause we only had two days off and it was, we lived in free fit and studied with, um, I had, the, my yoga teacher was a yoga master. He, you know, was, they, they code you by your robes and your coloring, what you can wear. It's kind of in a lot of different stuff, right? You get a certain robe at a certain time or a certain color or garment, whether it's a religious belief system or uh, my, my son's been taking karate. He just moved up to a gold belt. So he's been really excited about that. Um, and so they, my teacher was formally trained in Shivananda and then we had Swamis or uh, Gurujis that were these monks that had studied the ancient texts. And so we would have these 
group discussions and conversations around what they meant and how we're seeing them in this world now and what they meant back then when those words were created. And um, yeah, and so I got to go do that. It was amazing. And it was, didn't you tell me it was what, 10, 12 hours a day? Yeah, yeah, oh, 10, 12 hours a day, two practices a day. They they started, they, they were sneaky. They started with like two hour practices a day like one and a half hour for the second one sometimes and they were both eventually two two and a half hours and then they were like three and a half hours by the end of the train because you added layers you learn more technique and so you put it in and so we practice asana for an hour and 15 minutes hour and a half and then we practice breath work to clear the body for another 45 minutes and then we'd sit in meditation for 45 minutes to an hour and it was um over and over and by the end we were doing it three times a day and I was like just like all my muscles were forming. <laughs> they're just just so much strength and compression and structure but um it was a lot of time it was rigorous and it was very very I I I loved every moment of it I it changed me it was it was such a vital part of my my life story my process my journey um to just be able to go back to the roots of the South Asian you know, techniques and tools and practices. What a gift. What a gift to go back to your roots, like you said, and and learn ancient practices. I mean, wow. What a gift that would be to anyone, you know? I know. I wish that for people. And that's the thing, like, you know, that there's so much of that out there for us to be able to go back to our own roots or to find roots or make roots and, 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 and see what we are. And, you know, all our roots aren't just lovely and beautiful. So we sometimes we, but to go back to them and see them and, and engage with them. And especially in this area where I was putting more and more of myself into it. And so um, it was a really fortunate opportunity for me able to do that. And having family there and history there um, really made it all that much more special. So you'd wake up at what, five in the morning? I mean, what time? Yeah, yeah, we'd wake up at five, we'd go out and there'd be these salt in water warm jugs like a metal tins pots and we'd fill our little neti pot I still have it our and then we would neti pot and then we'd go and we'd have meditation quiet meditation for 30 minutes and then we'd meet for tea and they'd have honey lemon ginger tea that would be when we could talk and then we would go and we'd do our first practice and then after our first practice we would have our meals but you would have quiet meals you we'd like you know you're supposed to sit and quietly eat your food like a yogic meal and um and then we'd have a little break we'd have theory a little break more theory we'd switch from sutras to gita then we'd go and do another practice and then we'd all get to go back and we'd go have dinner and then sometimes we would either have a guest teacher in we had an Ayurvedic surgeon leading our anatomy and physiology. So that was really cool. Um, and then we had a, um, our, our other, our, our monk, our Swami would teach us bhajans or, or the, the songs and the, the, the mantras. And we'd spend some time on some of those um, together, but it would be 10, 12 hours a day. Well, and then at nine o'clock, I would like call my, 
my then boyfriend, my now husband, right? And then he'd I'd hang up and then he'd use a calling card and he'd call me back. And then I'd sit there and I'd talk to him. And so many nights I fell asleep with him just on the phone next to me because I was so tired. You know, this is like 2014 and what we were like, you, you had to have like SIM cards and do this thing and do. And it was just like, I was like, I can't just lay there, doze off, done. So I'm wondering what you learned. That seems really transformational. What did you learn? Uh, how powerful the techniques are that they've withstood time. But also, um, you know, my favorite line is like, you don't ever have to do a chaturanga. You don't. Like, yoga isn't a chaturanga. Yoga isn't a, in that down dog. You know, yoga is all of it. That's not that it's not those things at all, but you don't have to do a single chaturanga. It was like my favorite excuse to ever walk away from that pose in my life was like, and I did a whole 300 hour and we didn't do a single chaturanga. So I what like- about give- eagle? Did you do the eagle? Oh, we did do eagle. <laughs> we did do eagle. We did it. I know. They, they so got me. Describe they, the eagle. Describe the eagle since you're on video. Eagle, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Eagle pose. Well, you it's it's a standing balancing posture. And so one of the posture what you bind one leg over the other, and then you also wrap your arms together. And so you're standing. Okay, yes. And it's very like compressed, right? And things start to get wobbly and you're on one <laughs> foot technically and you can always prop your toe down. But the trick is you have to, the more you sit in it, the more your leg wraps around it, the more surface space you have, the more contact you have, then you have more support. You know, when we have contact, it's it's feedback. And then that means we have something to give into. And so it's almost one of those, you have to work on it, it past the difficulty of wrapping and sitting to really find time to sit in it. And then it may, it takes a lot of effort to be effortless, right? And I think that's a very powerful sentiment that you see um, these, these these beautiful postures sometimes put up and they put they, they float their feet up and there's this whole like visual of a handstand practice. And um, those can be really empowering. They require a lot of focus, but they've required a lot of time and technique and refinement. But it, they put a lot of effort into that to make it look so effortless. But down dog is a hard one, you know, chaturanga is a hard one. And I'm like, we we did a lot of hard poses, but it is so much more than that. And I learned more about the Sanskrit language and how it was really phonetically created to put off a of vibrancy. So the words that you speak actually hold the quality energetically of the meaning they put out. And so when you speak them out, that they hold their value so that every piece of this was very intentionally curated. Very mindfully created. I mean, the layers are phenomenal. So the intimate question is then, what did you learn about yourself while you were over there? Oh, you know, I, um, I think I was in a very performative place in my life outwardly and it informed me how much I had my own stuff to work on. And um, it was nice to see it in my roots because, you know, I think some of the challenges of growing up in the Western culture, having first generation immigrant parents was really finding the balance of meeting their expectations, though everything around me didn't really support 
that to its fullest, which is why I think I went back to India so many times that they were, you know, I was living there for a while. They were, um, but that I, I could do all the poses on the outside. I could want to, but the nuances and the layers were really within myself and it was going to take my, I was going to get out of it what I put into it. And I, um, and I learned how I, I will easily give way to others. And I think, you know, it can be a good thing to be of service, but when we're constantly serving those around us, we forget to take care of ourselves, then we lose a bit of that, which mm. we give. Say that again. So I think that when we give and we are not uh, keeping ourselves as as relevant and vital in the process of it all, we give out of ourselves to others and the world around us, the communities around us, then we lose a little bit of that for ourselves. And what we give, and the idea is, you know, if you give from an empty cup, what you give is something hollow. There's nothing, mm -hmm. there's nothing in there. There's no material, right? What you give is a hollow give. And um, those accumulate with time. And the giving might be authentic and it might be intentionally there with good reason and kindness and this ability to be a part of a bigger picture. But as a parent, I, I have to create a lot of balance and making sure I take time for myself. And I just booked a trip to New York City with a girlfriend for a few days and we're just gonna go play. And I'm like, I, I do that. And I it's interesting because it's like I I need that. And we have I was doing a lot for my the things outside of myself or the world around myself. And I um really need to dress that for myself within. And um yeah, that was a big lesson. So the self-care and I'm hearing boundaries. Yeah. Um, I, I, during my time, that's interesting that you mentioned that because during the time when I began my journey into mindfulness, which incorporated yoga, boundaries were a huge theme for me because I love that visual um, of giving from a place of being hollow. That's going to stick with me. So I, I thank you for that because um, as I learned about boundaries and the book Boundaries, it should be required reading for all adults. I don't care who you are, where you live. It is one of the most profound things I've ever read. And so I realized though, that by recognizing, being mindful that I was empty and when someone would ask something of me, sometimes I could give from a place of already having filled my cup. I, I had been to yin yoga. I had been on a long walk that day and I felt refreshed and vibrant and ready to give. But there were days when I didn't have time for that. And I knew that by saying yes, on the tail end of that yes, was resentment. And so that became my litmus test for giving is, will, will I feel resentful if I say yes? And and I think when I would say, yep, I think I will, that meant that I I had a hollow cup <laughs> and and it was the best thing for me and the person asking to say no. And boundaries oh. are huge. And we learn a little bit more of the boundaries, even of our body, of our flesh, when we perform yoga. That's what I found is becoming more in tune of where I end, that's boundaries again, where I end and where other people or the world around me begins. And I am in it, I'm connected to it, but we are we are not of one flesh. We, you know, there's kind of a stopping point where I am in control of myself. So yeah. Much. 
Well, it is, and it is, and it is uh, that, you know, I almost said it too. It's like, we can be resentful and that is a, that is a hard, you know, we're allowed, our feelings are very valid. And I always, I say it to my students all the time. I'm like, your feelings are valid. And sometimes are they, the question is, are they based in reality? Right. And I say that more like in a visual sense, because I'm like, you feel like your knees over your heel, but if you look down, it's not over your heel. Then what you feel and what is real are just are we're distinguishing them now, right? And I think um, we realize that what we can give, it will it's going to cost us something. And um, even if we want to be able to do it, it's like that resentment's going to add up. It, it accumulates within us, and then that calcified like hardness. I find, I find that's the thing that we have to challenge ourselves over and we're making more work for ourselves. So boundaries are really important. And then holding others to it, it's typically, you know, sometimes we think like, oh, I don't know how to hold my own boundary, but it's like, it's actually meeting others discomfort with your boundary. That is our work most often. And, you know, people don't like us having boundaries at times like that, like when it changes, they're like, wait, but I was able to do this. And you're like, no, I had, I had a learning, right. And my learning is this. And so I've put a hard stop here and, um, you know, and it's like us holding our line, but also like navigating how to handle others discomfort and, and kind of reminding that it's not our work to be done. Um, we can give them our whys and then they can either like understand and meet them or take the time to eventually get there. This was a nice little treasure that we came across. I didn't even expect us to talk about boundaries, but it's it's yeah, central to a lot of the work, in my opinion. It definitely is. Um, remind us of your definition of mindfulness, because that's going to lead us into our next part of the discussion. Yeah, um, I really come to this intentional attention, right? When we arrive with our, like, this desire is like the seed for intention. I think it's like you must seek something out or call it to you for us to intend to do something. And so when we intend to do something and we give it our attention, so this very intended upon arrival to something that is mind, you've put your mind into it. You've put you into it. It's a full mind and fully you-ness that really comes together. So how is yoga mindful? Oh, you know, yoga is the, the slow process of seeing ourselves right where we are, that when we make the postures or the breath work, we utilize them, we try to be with them in that moment. And the habit's going to be, you're going to think about, you know, what your lunch plans are or the task you left at your desk and you're going to have to come back to the pose and that when you're falling out of the pose is probably when you left your body and your mind went somewhere else or you missed the cue the teacher gave because you were in your own thing about it and that it is a real ask of us to be with ourselves and um, I predominantly teach this Katona style which really asks us to embody ourselves so if our body is our home it's where we reside it's the it houses our reality then how do we arrive within ourselves and and host ourselves in each moment and use that information that mindfulness attention to ourselves to see where we go a lot where we don't go maybe often or like what trips us up um my teacher often says it's you know 
it's not what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. That gets you. It's like, I, I was skiing recently and it was not skiing that I got hurt, even though I fell on the skis, it was my habit of looking too far out, trying to anticipate too far out into the future that when I wasn't on my feet, on my skis as a novice in the Rockies, I was falling over the things overhead, right? Or I was like worried about the bumps in the snow that were coming instead of just the 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 feet and the skis underneath me. And my habit was to go out into the future. I'm a parent. I'm always looking out to like, what's next? What's our day hold? I'm looking further out. And that mindfulness, that yoga practice really reminds me to keep coming back to me right here. And it's the refinement of that capacity to do it on my mat over and over, to do it in my breath techniques, to do it with my attention, to put my mind in it and my body in it so I can take it when I, you know, I'm running late to do drop off or pick up or whatever. <laughs> and so the urgent slides in, you know? Yes. So you're saying that as a 5,000 hour plus teacher, you're still thinking about that New York trip while you're holding that blasted eagle pose. I mean, it uh, happens to the best of us. Yeah. 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 I, you know, and I'm going to let you know, it's usually food. I'm thinking about. <laughs> Which one? What's, what's the you one know, that comes back? Oh, it's always a guacamole. I like love it. You know, like a good, I'm like, mm, are we going to do, I, I, I crave, I love a good like mezcal margarita, you know? And I'm like, go out, are we going to go have a drink and have a bite? Are we going to have a guacamole and tacos? We are big La Piedad people here in our house. We took our son when he was five days old, like that he sat in his little chair and we like had our, you know, first meal out as, as a family. <laughs> so it's my, it's my habit. It's like where I, you know, we, it's where we go. And so I'm always like, mm, what food are we, what are we going to eat after this? <laughs> I've done a lot of yoga. I'm going to be hungry. And I'm in that, you know, oh, off to the future I go, which is my habit. Yeah. It's a, it's who we are. I mean, our minds think. So I'm wondering how mindfulness has impacted your life, your uh, own life, maybe as a parent, as a spouse, as a teacher, human. I, I hope it has made me more generous and more patient. I think it gives me, you know, um, it's taught me to, to work through the discomfort that the journey is not around an obstacle. It's through it. And so we're figuring it out and that um, sometimes things will feel good and gooey and those are great, but um, you know, even in the yoga beliefs, they're like things we seek that we like eventually bring us grief because they end because all things that begin eventually end. And so, you know, are we causing ourselves harm or um, what I was listening to Atlas of the Heart and Brene Brown's, you know, she was talking about this, this quality of bittersweet to ha to hold too happy and sad at the same time. Um you know, and it is this ability for us to do that. And I think it leaves me more room to find joy in the bittersweets because it's usually bitter. There's something about it, right? My kid's about to finish kindergarten next week. And it's, I'm like terrified about all this time we're going to be spending together. Like, how am I going to occupy two children every day, you know, of the week for eight weeks? And also like he's growing. And I see, I look at pictures around my desk of him in his, you know, 
just it, it's like it's bittersweet it's there's this joy for him and that how much he's grown but it's like to to really manage those and celebrate those in life and that it's always going to be this and that it's never just one thing um and that that if it is you know things that might bring me joy could maybe bring others sorrow into so we have to or vice versa and so but there's got to be room for all of it and we're the best thing I can do is handle myself in the moment and it helps me teach my kids that I can really try to slow them down you know it's like really slow down together and patience as a parent is really you know I have a two-year-old she'll be three in July and a just turned six-year-old and we are in the thick of it yes you you said three and six yeah, yeah. my kids are three years apart so I have been in that exact same place and there's just so much energy that it's not quite fair you know I mean it's just it's stacked in their favor there's just no way around it's so by it I mean I'm like how there's two of them there's one of me they're in different seasons but they're like all alert and I'm like mommy just wants to read a book in the sun like maybe sit outside quietly and like mm. I don't know do we have to make this much noise or can we like it takes them so much discomfort to eventually get to the place where they're playing together well. And it's like me trying to be patient to get to that point. You know, it's like they're first they're hitting each other with the bats and the balls. And then eventually they're both hitting the ball and the bat properly and they're playing together. But that first bit is like the hard bit. <laughs> That's my yoga bit. So I'm wondering about your own routine. Do you have any particular routines that are mindful? Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe that doesn't happen in the morning because there's a three-year-old and a six-year-old running around. What, tell me about your routine. What 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 sticks with you? Well, I'm a data person, so I love information. I'm a learner, a life learner. So I had read about how much we dehydrate and a lot of the Indian cultures too would like you drink your warm water in the morning and so I first thing I do is I drink a full thing of room temperature water about 16 ounces what, what is that 16 ounces, 12 right. to 16 ounces yeah and um I will just take it down like I, I sometimes two cups and then um I do a, um, I was doing morning pages, which I think we talked briefly about the artist's way and uh, Julie Cameron's book and the three pages. I have so many notebooks full, but then this season of my life, it was taking me too long to get that done and what the kids needed in the morning. And so um, I've gone to a website, it's called 750 words. I think that they have a new platform. So it's new.750words.com and you, they, averaged out, measured out that each page is roughly 250 words. And so you try to get 750 words out and I can get it done in eight to 10 to 12 minutes versus 30-ish minutes of like handwritten 35, sometimes 40, you know, um, and I often pause, like I can do this and I can stay with it and I can get it and I can really get that conscious stream of writing done. And so that's my morning ritual. Um, and I make my bed. I'm a bed maker. I want my bed made. So when I come back to it later, she's very loving and nurturing. And it's um, it's the ritual of that. My end of week practice um, on Sundays, we eat 
put three things we're grateful for into what we call our gratitude jar. My friend Shannon, my bestest, my little soul sister of a person had um, introduced me to this idea. And on the first of the year, we always open up our jar and look back at the year of things we've been grateful for. And then we keep a handful and we put the year on it and we put them back in the jar. And so every year we've asked, so we have some from 2015 and 2016 and 2017. And so those get to come back up as well. And they, you know, the, some of them are bittersweet. My, I had a dog for 12 years. She like, wait, I was always still grateful for, it. you know, so it's like, there's these things. Um, but that, that one's, we've been doing that for almost 10 years and it is a really special way. And we now are, you know, slowly involving Beckett writing his out and as he's learning to write we imagine he'll write his own in you know we'll have we'll kind of have to look at him for a bit kids spelling words is like the funniest thing in kindergarten you know like when they're first phonetically trying to sound out and what they how they spell it out <laughs> so um but that is that's a ritual we have weekly and annually um and my practice is mostly breath work and and either writing i i and and or I do some simple like movements. I tend to have shoulder neck stuff that I like to work on. Just it's my habit to carry kind of my effort here. So I'll do a lot of wrist work and shoulder work to counter life stuff, you know? Heck. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just to set myself up for a little more success because by the end of the day, and I'm so tired. I'm like in my bed, you know, like watching <laughs> whatever show on the couch. I've like slumped in with the couch, kids cuddling in. My butt's tucked under, my shoulders are rounded. I'm like turning into a little ball. And so um, it gives me vibrancy, the breath practices. So those are a bit of my routines. And I find that you don't need as much. Sometimes we put more pressure on sticking with it. Sometimes it's good to try something new. And so uh, the typing has been a new thing, but I've really found it um, gives me a feeling of like accomplishment to self and attention to the things that my mind is coming to. And then also, you know, um, I found a way to do it more efficiently in this season of my life. Love that. Well, and that's really the heart of yoga, I feel like, is you adapt. You adapt in the moment, in a season. And so you're doing that. That's beautiful. We we touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'm I'm wondering if you would describe to me and our guests or, or, or our, our audience, um, the difference between Indian yoga or practicing yoga in India and North American yoga? Yeah, you know, I find these, a lot of the, the these Eastern styles, right? I find there are closed systems, like they're a certain way where you do it a certain order, we have it. Um, but there's an end goal in mind um, that is a little bit, I think, more like wholly integrated, right? We do the posture so we can breathe well. We breathe well, so we move the prana well. We move the prana well, so when it's harmonized, we can sit and meditate. And, um, you know, and I, I'm I'm the, I'm going to be the first to say it. Why did I end up in a, you know, hot yoga? It's because I was like, I need to do something mindful. I, or I want to move. I want I want to sweat. I want to get a workout and I want to get it done. I want to feel accomplished because there is something to that. Um, I do think there's like a difference in what we're looking for and accomplishments and not to say that's a bad thing. I think we just are, 
we're in different cultures and customs and, uh, and approaches to it. And um, there was that rigor and commitment and time, but it's like, I don't have three and a half hours for a practice. There's a more like structure to their order and why they do it that way and that discipline. I think in the West, we have a little more forgiveness and leniency, but that also goes into more like performative and on the outside and exterior based. And there's got to be room for all of it. But um, I do think that, you know, there are those differences. And in India, they don't use blocks where, where I was training. It was so funny. Not, and, you know, BKS Iyengar, he did bring in props eventually, but it was like, you get to your toes by straightening your legs and eventually your hands will get to the floor, right? Or it's like you work on the bind pose, but you just don't do the bind and eventually you get your hands to your feet by doing the other poses or, and it's like, like a, like a mermaid pose where you're like in a back bend and you're on your in pigeon and then you're hold, like in the end it's sleeping swan. Right. But it's like very out there and it's a big pose. And, um, I, I like to bend my knees. I like to bend my knees and everything. And so permission on the West has been more generous to me and my body. I think we have to adapt from the Eastern way, but there was like a, a method to the madness there and the method was there so we could be with ourselves. And that sitting and being with ourselves was really that vital piece of it. And the texts really talk, you know, the Yoga Sutras is one of the books that they reference and it only mentions one pose and it is the sit pose. It is to sit and be with ourselves pose. And so the rest of it's just an aim to help us get there. And um, here it's, you know, it's like we're getting our workout in. We're getting our, it's not, and it's so much more than that too, but it's like a box checked. We do it in like in an hour and we get it done for the day and we feel like we've accomplished a thing. And it is, and it can be really, for me, an hour long practice is really empowering, but it took me a long time to get there. It took me a lot of different techniques and trainings and visits and workshops to really find that for myself. So- do you feel like in an hour you can get through enough or similar poses to reach at least kind of a shade of of what India is shooting for? Is that even possible or it's like, no, you really need to do the three hour thing? No compromises. No, I think we can. And it might the fun the interesting thing is I I, I like a good I like a 90 minute practice because I like breath work and I like to give it its own time. But in an hour, you can do it. And I, I teach a Katona class once a week for an hour and we get there. And I think the point is discern, like why meditate? And it's like to discern well, to sit well, to be well, to find contentment so you can discern how you're attaching to something and how it makes you feel. And that, you know, are those feelings based in reality? What is valid and what is necessary? And is it even being helpful? And I think in an hour long class, you can hit those points. You can hit ways to kind of take those concepts on, embody them, explore them within yourself, explore your body, your reactions within it and find habits there with time and time and time, an hour a day, an hour, you know, each time you're putting it in adds up to a lot of hours of time with yourself. And that that's, you know, I think that there's, it adds up whatever way. I think it's a little unrealistic to have three and a half hours. I don't, you know, maybe I'd look forward to a season of my life when that's possible, but I may be done with, <laughs> I may not be interested in a three and a half hour practice, but I'm not, I'm not interested actually in a three and a half hour practice. So, you know, it's, 
Um, can we leave room for all of it and, and maybe make it more whole? I think that would be bridging that gap, right? Where we might be so focused on poses. Um, can we remember to invite other things in and, and do that within an hour? I think we can, if, you know. I want you to talk a little bit about um, the type of yoga um, that you've mentioned several times, Katona. It's a newer form. So it sounds like you are evolving yoga or helping with that process of evolving yoga. Tell us what is Katona and what, what drew you to it too? Oh, so I was taking a trip to New York. So disclosure, favorite city in the world. Go there. It's like my favorite place to go at least once a year. And um, I was visiting and a teacher of mine who was recently moved to Indianapolis from New York. I was like, hey, do you have any recommendations? And he said, oh, you should check out this place. And the style of yoga they teach is called Katona. And it is geographically named. Um, Naveen Miken and uh, who really founded it, Abby Galvin, are really these, uh, they've been spearheading this style of yoga in the East Coast for 35, 40 years. But in the sense of yoga, that's really the new kid on the block, right? It's still very new to the table. Um, and it integrates Hatha yoga and naturalism, these Chinese medicine and Taoist philosophies, ideas, uh, breath work, practice, um, really this, it uses a lot of formal technique to inform us. It's a longevity practice. And so I, and I like that about it, that I can do it over and over and I don't have flare ups in my body. I don't have injury, but it's saying, you know, how do you work the the mind you work through the body because it's our most tangible resource and how do you work the body you use the mind the body has an explicit capacity you have here's my hands my hand stops here right my joints stop here like this is me it's explicit but the mind is limitless it's expansive and implicit that there is so much potential within the mind and so we could integrate mindfulness and using our mind in a capacious way that we can really captivate that in our body. And I, um, we use a lot of techniques like measure that form bones are structure and they give us structure, right? They're the form of our body. And so we use measure for stacking our bones well and ourselves well, so we can use our joints well, creating strong angles that lands last through time and really putting time into that stuff. Um, and it is, so I found it in New York and then I, I found a teacher in Columbus and I did a workshop there and I went back in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, well, oh, no, Columbus, Ohio, actually. Okay. Sorry. I know we're so close. It was, I do forget about that sometimes. Um, so Columbus, Ohio, and then I went to New York and trained. And then, um, with the pandemic, I actually, cause I didn't even think I would get my 200 hour in Katona. It was just seemed a little unrealistic. I would have to go to a West coast or an East coast or, um, when Josie was still in Columbus there, but she moved to Denver. So now I was back to the West. It was like, well, how do you do that? And, um, with the pandemic, I actually got so much more access and I found even more teachers, teachers that don't live in the U S teachers that are all over the globe leading these things. And, um, you have to have a 200 hour to get certified, but you independently acquire 200 hours of training and then you reach your certification. And so since, 2019, I've been accumulating hours, um, but I really put my head into it after a trip to Greece in 2021 for a retreat where we did Katona twice a day, uh, the, the whole week, and I didn't have any flare-ups, I didn't have any injuries, and I walked away really feeling clear and grounded, and um, and so 
I, it is what I predominantly practice and I, I love to teach it, but all my vinyasa classes have a bit of my Katona theory, the, the, not, it's, you know, it's, but like my approach to their theory and their ideas of takes a lot of effort to be effortless and that how you do anything is how you do everything. And, um, that our, when does our place of mastery, you know, this is when I really, this came to me was how do the things we've mastered our mastery eventually causes misery. Like when do our strengths become our weaknesses is, is one of the ways they say it. It's like we do something so many ways, eventually we either break it down or we become so stuck in it that we forget to see other angles and it leaves us out of our, off, you know, another bit of information. And um, our body's a tool for insight. It's a personal practice. And so I could go on and on and on. I'm sorry, <laughs> tangent on That's it. It's wonderful. I what stuck out to me was this uh, longevity piece. So this means, does that mean that we are we would be building our bodies stronger as a way to live longer? Is that what you mean by that? Well, I think it's, a, so it's like, what's the formula for joy, right? And it's like to live a long, happy, healthy life. Well, that means you want to have a body that can keep up with a healthy mind and you want a mind that can keep up with the healthy body because there's nothing more tragic than to have a functioning body and a dysfunctional mind or like when your mind deteriorates, right? Like when we're not, we're learning through science that we can do certain things and it helps us and our, our neurology and our plasticity overcome other potential diseases or um, down the way, right? And then that the body can be used to really fine tune and to do well and that when we're working our joints and we're working our body we're working its energetics we're also working the organs that have jobs right your liver is a filter it, it needs it's it needs to you can't live without a liver you know you um our kidneys are sponges that what's like what do we secrete what do we keep on what do we let go of? what do we what do we let release and it's like how are we doing it for our body so we have a healthy body and a healthy mind and we can find joy for it over a longer period of time. I like that. I like that. It seems like that would be a maybe a good practice for beginners. I mean, you're trying to create the structure. Would you recommend that as for beginners? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, most people are going to find it later because the teacher has found, you know, I, I mean, our, the studio I go to in, in Manhattan it, you know, their tagline is like the place your teacher goes to practice. And it's like most of us found it later after many much time, but some people found it earlier because they were right by it and it just happened to be what they found. And so I think there's room for all of it. And um, I think it's been, that's been the lovely thing about incorporating components of it and ideas of it in a vinyasa class, because that's the general means, right? That's what we're going to typically find are these hot vinyasa classes but then you can layer it and build to it. But, you know, I also think that sometimes people don't come in with bad habits if they're new. So you don't have to, you don't have to persuade them that there might be this way to take a look at it. You know, it's like, I'm like, always like bend your knees and down dog. And all people want to do is straighten your legs. And I'm like, great, then straighten your legs. You know, it's like, I, there's gotta be room for all of it. So that's right. That the part about it. Yeah. What, what sorts of tips do you have for beginners to yoga? Oh, you know, 
It's not about the pose. I think it's really um, a very interesting thing. I think that we get really hung up on doing the poses right. And um, it's more about the process you have, the stories you tell yourself along the way. And then like, what are the stories you're gonna tell yourself? And if you say you can't do things, I can't touch my toes, then why would you ever get to touch your toes, right? It's like our narrative and be patient with it, that it is a, even in the books, they tell you, this is a practice that requires repetitive attention. It's a practice. They use words that say, you know, you do it by ragya, to come to it with discipline over and over and over again, that, that over and over again will look different with time, but that also, you know, it is that like, keep coming back to it. And enlightenment might not be what we find, but the grace that we find when we give ourselves meet ourselves where we are and are like, oh, I drifted off. Like, oh, there's that habit is, I think that's the lesson we're walking away with. And so you can do it in any style of practice and you could do it at any level, um, both find it and deepen it your practice. A word that keeps coming to me as we speak today is discipline. You seem like a very disciplined person and a big proponent of discipline um, that seems to be at the heart of the yoga practice for you? Do you see That's it that so way? I see it from that. the outside. So I'm curious if you see it. It's so funny. I'm, I'm a, I am a formulator and a planner and a strategist. I like to analyze and overview. And I, so I feel like I have, I have areas of discipline, um, probably not where I could use them the most, or, you know, it's like, say, do as I say, not as I do, you know, my practice, it lacks because I spend a lot of time between parenting and teaching and, and really working and monumental yoga we have coming up and, you know, being on this board, it's like, I'm volunteering my time and I'm getting, I'm contracting in time and I'm paying, you know, I'm working. And it's like, I, the first thing that slips is my yoga practice, but I also know my yoga practice is the thing that sustains me. And I've had to really shift how I look at it with time. And my avenue in was body and hour long practices. And now it's more like 15 minutes of breath work and seated work and calling it a day because I know that that's about what I can do, but it's impressive what I can do in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, I'm leaving grace for that. I, um, yeah, I hope that answered the question. I feel it like did. I, I would just say from the outside in, it, that seems to be kind of bubbling beneath the surface. So I have a lot of respect for the discipline it's taken you to get to this point. So I know we can beat ourselves up quite a bit, but I just wanted to say that it's it's a lot that you've committed to the practice and I'm sure it has blessed thousands of people because you've put in thousands of hours. So well, for yeah. myself, you know, it's taught me a lot. The more I do it, the more it teaches me. And then I guess I suppose I have more to share. Yeah, yeah. And people take what they can, yeah. The other word that has come up as we've had um, pre previous interactions has been inclusivity. Tell me what that means to you as it relates to yoga and why it's so important to you. Well, I think, you know, we are, um, if we're even looking at yoga as a seed of it, and it's this idea that we, we yoke together, we bring together, we come together, then that means there's no alone, that it's always this and that. So it's always all of us. And we're a bigger, we're more potent together. There was a study done um, where they measure the capacity of the heart, that when the heart is actually, you are with more people, your heart can work better and less. It works harder when it's on its own, but it works 
more efficiently and with less effort when we're in a community. So we are communal beings and we are really meant to collaborate and coexist. Um, and that I think that it is, I don't know. I think that inclusivity is our avenue in that we want people to feel welcome and safe and um, and able no matter their body type, disability, ability, you know, means, access, that they can find these things and have them for themselves. And it doesn't, you don't have to stand on your hands for it to be yoga, or you don't have to progress that way. It could be for your mind and your breath. And I think that there's really an important, we can include people in on this and they can find their own possibility and potential and really sit with themselves as these beings capable of becoming getting on the other side of an obstacle that we are empowering them and that it shouldn't be limited to a certain audience based on what they look like and what they can afford and where they live and how much education they have or you know what disabilities they're working with and it's I think it's very important um, that we try to really widen that net of how people are seeing yoga as a means of being accessible and everything, everything. I, you know, I think that life could be more inclusive. Yeah. Well, I, I know in our discussion, you talked about, um, being a, I, I do want you to lead us in a practice. So we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment because I'm really interested to see which one you lead us in. Um, in our discussion, you had talked about, being an ambassador for Lululemon. And so while we're on this topic of inclusivity, let's talk about that and 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 how that kind of came together. I know in the past, Lululemon had had some challenges with inclusivity. We, we spoke about that, um, honestly, openly, frankly. And so um, when we started talking about inclusivity and that you were a Lululemon um, ambassador, I was really curious about that. So what does it mean to be an ambassador for Lululemon? and what has changed in Lululemon and what, 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 what things have they done? I feel like they are, you know, there um, is great responsibility that comes with great power, right. And they're a bigger organization. And I think they really saw themselves as like, if we are, if we're originally based around like mindfulness or we've integrated mindfulness ideas into the way we, build our teams and how we exist in communities and how we build our stores and our brand and our product. And it's very intentionally curated that some of these pieces take 10 years to make, right? They just came out with shoes and it's like, they've been working on them for over a decade and um, certain styles and cuts might take years to come out into the real world tangible place where we get to buy them as a product that they're, they're doing that in some areas, but there was lack in other areas. And then you have, um, you know, pandemic, you have the George Floyd incident, and then you have our awareness. People can't go off to brunch and forget about these atrocities that are happening in our systems. And they're sitting at it and they're looking at it face on now. And so when the, all those things happen and the Black Lives Matter movements was rising and there were protests, they went ahead and 
put money in it, put support into it, created an organization and a whole body that went on to um, work on specifically IDEA is the acronym, Inclusity, Diversity, Equity, and this ability that we can, um, they could invest in their people. And how they did that was, you know, they took global, they took ambassadors from around the globe and they interviewed and I put myself as a candidate up for that because I felt like I both worked for the company before when we had some problems as well. And, and then also had really, you know, seen them pivot and try to attempt some things and do some things well. And um, they are, we're not going to expect them to get it perfect. And I don't think any organization is, you know, you look to leaders in any area, they have been through a lot of hardships, whether it's Archbishop Desmond Tutu or the Dalai Lama, you know, they had, they went through some real atrocities, but they still find compassion. They say we've come a long way and that sadly change does take a long time. It's a slow build up. We, we, it blows our mind because we're in an age of urgency and immediate gratification, but like they put their dollars where they went, they expanded their sizing, right? They I think it took a lot of my, my observation would be like, it probably took a lot of marketing and research and a lot of feedback to figure out how to make that look right. And then. So tell us about that. So what did it used to be and what is it now? The sizing. I don't know their exact sizing, but they used to their size two. Right. But I think their, their sizing is like an extra, extra small to like an extra large is technically it, but the numbers don't depict that. So people don't really get that. And you have to be able to walk into a store and go, I might be willing to put a hundred dollars into these pants and their numbers don't even make it sense to me. And it doesn't look like it includes me. And I think there was a lot of gap in that, but then there was a need for more sizes. Our body types are not, a, we're not limited to this certain small means and so um what we're, we're what's projected out into the world around us or told around us and we're not supposed to necessarily fit those boxes either and so i think including more sized runs and styles and sizes and so now i think they go 16 18 so they've added three four more sizes and they go down a bit as well and um they i think they really have made cuts and styles that are more inclusive and you know they're they I think you look at a newsletter or their website and the bodies don't look like one specific type of body. You know, they're really trying to expand like this is for everyone. And, and they invest in their teams a lot and they invest in improving themselves a lot. They have their own development programs, but you know, I saw them when the pandemic hit and a lot of the ambassadors run wellness businesses take part of their profits and say, we're going to put this through a fund so these organizations can apply and get some funding to help them keep them afloat during a very hard time for an industry that took a big hit. And, you know, all at the same time, donating to organizations that were struggling, that were out there doing the work for advocacy and inclusion. And, you know, they've been real proponents for the LGBTQIA plus community. And I think that they're really standing with people and, you know, I, I think they're trying. I think they're trying. And that and I appreciate that more than anything. Excellent. Thank you for sharing with us that that journey and and what they have committed to and what they are doing. I'm wondering if at this moment, if you could tell us one of your favorite practices uh, or favorite poses potentially, um, and maybe lead us through that, or it could be a breath work. Um, I'm not sure what you've chosen. So this is a little bit of a what's behind door three for us. 
Right. Okay. So I wanted to take us to um, what is called um, it's the golden thread meditation is what it's sometimes referenced to. It is a, I'm sorry, I'm going to probably do faster just to make sure for a little longer. Um, the idea in Katona that our body is a house. We are residing. This is our abode. Our house has three floors. Each floor has three rooms. So it's a nine grid room. Okay. And the golden thread meditation kind of takes us through each room of our house, its archetypes, what qualities it holds, um, and takes us through our house. And I thought I'd take us through our house a little slower with the archetypes at first, while we're breathing and kind of building, and then um, take us through a little bit faster. And what's neat is each house, each room has a number. So it's like sometimes a number lands to you, or sometimes when we're there and we revisit and revisit, we're like, I actually don't feel anything in that part of my body. You're like, oh, I really feel something over here. And it gives us time to attend, but it gives us access to our whole body. So I thought I'd take us through the golden thread meditation and the metaphor of the body as a house. And you could do it seated, you could do it standing, you could do it driving. So that's a really nice thing about it is listeners can kind of take this on wherever they are. So, if we're ready, I, I suggest like, if you can stand or if you're seated, really sit, get your feet on the ground. And um, if it feels safe and you're available, you're not driving, close your eyes. <laughs> so you can really take it on. Um, and then just notice how you breathe as you sit. What's the cadence? Where's the sensation? Is one lung fell up a bit more than the other? Is it the lower chambers, the upper chambers? Notice that you have a left side. It's typically the lunar in nature, the feminine, the receptive. Then you've got the right side. It's solar. It's young. It's the masculine in nature, the trajectory. And then us in the middle of it where it's unified is this third nature, us engendered, engendered that we are neither and both. Take a moment, lick your lips, swallow. Shift a little bit left to right in your hips. And then stop in the middle, shift a little. If you could tuck and tilt your tailbone and find the middle. And then the idea is the imagery of feeling your left foot, your left hip within its support. So if you're standing, your foot's on the ground, really feel your left foot plant, find your left knee, find your left hip, and then do the same on the right, your right foot, your right knee, your right hip. And then imagine you have a third foot, your perineum, which is between the pubis and the coccyx, plugging in like a third foot, your implicit imaginary third foot, your trinity, your triangle, your strong prong, plugging into the earth so you can root in. And as you plug in beneath, you find rise out of the top of you. Notice around your left eye, your eyeball fits its socket, your right eye, your eyeball fits its socket. And this third eye between the eyes and the forehead, this third eye. So this capacity to look out into the world, cross-reference, and then look in and inform ourselves. Then you have your left hand your left shoulder, your right hand, your right shoulder, and the imaginary third hand, the proverbial button and buttonhole coming together. 
So these are our three rooms, our three floors. I want you to imagine the soft, fleshy part at the top of your head, a drop of the universal golden thread that is containing drops in from the crown of your head and it falls all the way down swallow. Imagine you following that saliva as it hits the belly button. Imagine it dropping, 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 dropping down one to your boiler room, that third foot, the perineum plugging downward into the ground. This is where we turn the fire in our house. We have our circuitry, our um, sex organs, our electricity, the things that turn us on. It's our fire, it's our heat, that nature polarity. Fire is effort. It is rising. It but you got to heat your house so you can live within it. You have heating and cooling. So we ground our circuits, we light a match, we strike a fire, we have our boiler room, and then fire rises and we rise rise up to our right eye. Now I want you to go to the back of your right eye. And this is what is behind us is our history, our ancestry. So room two is our attic. It's where we keep the things that have been handed down to us in time, our treasures. We wanna keep them away from flooding when water descends. We wanna keep them the furthest away from the fire. God forbid our house catches on fire. We keep it up, we store it. That's what's been handed down over time. And we go behind ourselves through our history, through time, to our left shoulder, our left hand. This is our kitchen. It's the side of our heart. It's how we handle our feelings. It is us. Who do we break bread with? What are the conversations we have in our kitchen? How do we feel ourselves in the world, our internal lunar landscape, our feelings of ourselves? And then from three, we go up. We rise up to our left eye, to the front of it, where we look out into the world. It's our bedroom. It's where this day begins. We dream and envision our goals, and we open the curtains. We look out to the world, and we turn slightly that left eye towards 2 o'clock. Imagine if you're on a clock face, visioning out to 2, that there's so much potential out there. Then 5, you go diagonally down the steps in your house to your center your heart space the room of your own room five it's the middle of it all it has access to every room in your house it is the most implicit version of ourselves that this is where we light our candle put on our vinyl take out our journal and spend some time doing us putting ourselves in the mix of it and you keep following that diagonal line down to your right hip, your right knee, your right foot. This is your garage. It's how you step out into the world. It's where you put yourself out there. You accelerate. You put the pedal to the metal. You start to initiate yourself in the world around you. And from your garage, you climb up as you take initiation. You go up into your office, your library, where you keep your calendar, your pens, your papers. You sign your contracts in the world. You shake with your right hand. You say, this is who I am. You out, you put yourself in it, and you formalize it. You put it on your calendar. You say, I'm going to be here at this time and this day, and that is my capacity. You go back and behind yourself from room seven to room eight, which is actually your left hip, your left knee, your left foot, because it's your laundry room. It is this idea that there is also us in time showing up to those appointments, us in time showing up that we can start to really trust ourselves, build ourselves. And then in time, the truth comes out, that it comes out in the wash. You have to spend time on something to learn your techniques. And it's also that when you do laundry, that you accumulate laundry is the shit that grounds you down as life propels you in all directions. It's the anchor that brings us back. And then finally, room nine, we climb up to our third eye, our forehead center. This is us, our 
upper deck patio where we step out and look out and see our entire landscape. We see our white picket fence if you have one or your backyard and your whole terrain that you, and then you take a big breath in. This is all of you, all of your roofs, all of your floors. You 10 is one in the next dimension. Exhale, drop down to room one, your boiler room, the center, a third foot, your pelvis perineum room two you climb up to your attic you see your history you go back in time into your left arm and you go into your kitchen and you see how you feel about it and then four you climb up to your bedroom and you dream and envision about it what you feel and how you want to see it and five you come to the center of yourself the around the heart the middle and say though this is me and this is how I approach it this is my version of it you step out into the world as you go into your right foot and you take the risks and you put the effort out there. You climb up room seven to your right arm and you say, I'm shaking and making deals. I'm going to sign the contract. I'm going to do what I say and say as I do. You go back and you really behind yourself in time and you do it over and over and over again. You land in your laundry room and you do it over and over. All the things that keep us, remind us that there is so much to exist in our own personal domesticity to be our householders, to be human in this life and rise up nine, we've achieved it, come up to that third eye. You, as all of you, inhale, breathe it in, take it all in and exhale, huh, let it go, make a little sound, speak up for yourself. Again, inhale from your perineum to the crown and then each a huh, let it go. Take a scan, see how you feel. Notice any numbers, any sensations, any lack thereof. See if you can arrive with your observations without judgment. With discernment, you decide what to keep, but to let go. And then you blink the eyes open. Thank you for that. We've not had that before. I've honestly never heard of it before. Love that. Yay. I um it's it's a personal favorite and it is um it's a part of the Katona techniques, but I've been using it for years and body mapping for vinyasa class, just helping people find themselves, whether it's in a seated posture on their back, standing. Yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to it again later so I can focus even more now that I have kind of the lay of the land. Feel free to do that um, for our listeners too. We are going to go through the glowy daily reflection practice, which is in my book, The Chaos Antidote, available about mindfulness and the companion workbook. You know that G stands for grateful. So why don't you tell us what you're grateful for? Uh, I'm grateful for um, yoga. I'm grateful for it all of the time, every single day of my life. Excellent. What about lift up? What is something in your life that you or someone else may need resources for? Um, well, I am a, you know, I'm going to plug in our indie yoga movement because we are looking for more resources, more teachers, more support to really expand. We're moving into the Muncie Community School District this year. And so um we want to we want to go beyond central Indiana. We want to support um everywhere. And I that inclusivity factor of really taking yoga into schools, not asking them to come somewhere separate is is a really special way to make it accessible. So to take it to them where they're already going to be. And other organizations as such that are really helping our youth um, advocate and find their resiliency. What about observe? What is something that you notice inside or around you? Oh, 
it is a it has been a, such a joy today to speak about things that really light my light me up even as i like hear my dogs barking in the backyard i'm like working the dissonance but it's like it's it's i'm still very grounded and and feel very grateful at this time what is your wholesome intention the w of glowy ooh to go out today and really make it a great day and just take perspective into the day and um it's a friday i'm gonna celebrate it i'm gonna make it a pool party kind of a day all right and the last one is my favorite it's the you are sometimes i even hug myself a little bit as i say it you get to say pervy you are and this is the positive affirmation to send yourself out into the day celebrate your awesomeness Mm, i you are wholesome i feel like i feel very whole and full right now and um going to keep reminding my that myself that even in pickup line later. <laughs> um, I want to wrap us up here with you having the opportunity to tell us about monumental yoga that's coming up very soon. What is it? Where is it? Who's putting it on? Give us the details. How do we, how do we take, take part in that? Right. Well, it's our 10th year, Monumental Yoga, 10 years of Monumental Yoga. So we're really excited. It takes place on the solstice. And so it's June 21st. Um, it's going to be in the afternoon, evening, 430 to 9, and we'll be in the circle. There's going to be a community class. So all levels, very inclusive, 730 p.m. And um, you come and we practice as a community together. We've really been doing this for a long time. We've had Thousands of people show up over the years and participate. We have vendors and a village. And so all are welcome. There'll be a family class earlier. So it's about 30 minutes. So parents and kids can participate together. And then you've got the group class. Um, you know, you could be brand new, never done it. It's a lot of times where people have, they're like, I, my first class was actually monumental. I came with a friend. And that's the thing where like, bring your people uh, we're collecting donations. We'll have merchandise that's put on by Indie Yoga Movement. Um, we are a nonprofit that brings school yoga organizations uh, during school days, after school, repetitive exposure to yoga and mindfulness practices so kids can build resiliency, develop grit, um, ability to manage emotional regulation, that they can really be empowered in their lives to overcome the obstacles they face. And so um, it allows us all the funding that we receive and just the exposure through these events really gives us, you know, more reach. And um, we are a nonprofit. So it is by means of dollars and the generosity of people that we get to go out there and offer classes, especially to places that maybe can't afford them. And then, you know, yeah. So that's June 21st. It's a Wednesday. I am pretty certain. And um, it is coming up. So we're so excited. And we hope the whole community will come out and celebrate all studios. It's it's not about, you know, where you practice, what you practice is for everyone. This really is for everyone. I love that. And tell us um, where we find out more about that. We Do we need to register? It would be great. That would be helpful. MonumentalYoga.com. We have a website there. Studios, if you're interested in sponsorships, we have a bunch of tiers for that. We have uh, vendors that can sign up, volunteers that can sign up. You can register for the event just so you can sign the waiver. You get a little sense of it. You'll get email. We're on social media. We have Monumental Yoga Indie on Instagram. And then um, we're on Facebook. And then IndieYoga.org is our organizational website. And um, you can always find their kind of interlinked right now as we're building the momentum for monumental but it's wonderful and that is 
on the circle in downtown Indianapolis. So you shut, it, you, you shut it down and there's no traffic there. So you just take, what What do you need to bring? Just a yoga mat and yourself? Yoga mat, yoga mat and yourself and maybe some sunscreen because it's not, you know, it's the longest day of the year. So we really honor the sun that provides us and nourishes us in this life on this planet. And so we honor it and we um, do it on the day in this Northern hemisphere where we have the most sunlight. Beautiful. And will there be food trucks or what, what can people expect as far as that? Yeah, there'll be food trucks. There'll be, we'll have water stations. So we'll have a lot, you can buy food. You can, you know, there'll be all sorts of things. And then there'll be vendors of every type from Indianapolis studios. They'll have booths and participants. There'll be acro yoga. There'll be um, all sorts of things. So you can, and then it's right in Monument Circle. So if you decide you don't want anything that's there, you can bop, bop over and come right back. So, you know, city markets right down the way. And, but we're really centralized and, There'll be bike parking and we close off the circle so pedestrians can really move about and enjoy. And then the soldier and sailors monument where that's we're on the monument circle. It's beautiful there. Tell us the 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 website again, one last time before we close. Yeah, monumentalyoga.com. Perfect. And indiyoga.org. Yeah, that's it. Oh my goodness. Pervy, it has been amazing today. Thank you so much for your time, opening your your heart to us and sharing a practice with us, telling about your journey into yoga. So I wish you all the best with Monumental Yoga, and I hope to join you there. Um, I have a I have a beautiful mat, and I hope to put it out there on the cobblestones. It's gorgeous downtown. Um, so I will wrap us up here. From my heart to yours, may you live with ease. This is your host, Amy Morgan, signing off.